If you would open your Bibles now to Ephesians 2. Ephesians, he said. Ephesians. Um, after a, uh, a long winter, I think it's fun uh, when the sun comes out and its warmth hits the snow in our yards. It's fun to see all of the shrapnel of the previous season come back through. You know what I mean? If your yard looks like mine, you know, it's like, oh, there's the canoe. Or I was missing that shovel. Well, that soccer ball spent the whole winter outside. That wasn't intended. A little bit of firewood ended up over there. I have no idea how that happened. But there's all this debris just scattered about, and it's starting to poke through as the snow melts. And it just reveals things that are not quite as they should be and lays out for me a lot of work that I have to do in the future. And as I was thinking about that picture, I thought, you know, that is, in a sense, where I believe the church is right now after these last 14 months. Uh, the sun is out, things are changing, maybe not as fast as we would like. Uh, but as sort of the, the icy winter of COVID is sort of melting away, it is revealing plenty of shrapnel and debris and systems that were changed, and some things that we'll try to put back to rights, and some things that will probably remain changed. And as we look at all of that, it's, we just kind of know we have this field of things that weren't, are not as they were, and we're not quite sure how they'll be. And um, I have been pastoring here for um, you know, almost 19 years now. This has been the most difficult season. And so I want to... Um, I want to call upon you to do something for me, pastorally. I want to ask you to extend to one another grace. As we try to put things back, as we try to clean up our yard, so to speak, uh, within the church, and we figure out what goes back and how and when and all of that, we're going to end up on different timelines. We're going to have different opinions. And you're going to find people uh, within your church family with very different opinions than your own. And I know in my own heart and in the hearts of many that we're tired and we're fatigued and we're impatient. And I will say we're grouchy. I'm grouchy. Some of you are too. And it's understandable. We can do the math. We know that after this long season, we've spent a lot of patience. We've been frustrated a lot, delayed a lot, held back a lot, hemmed in, whatever. And people are in short supply of grace and patience with, with one another right now. But we're Christians. And we have access to a resource that the world does not, and that is the power of Almighty God who funds us with grace. And we're going to take two weeks and do this short series on grace, because we need it, because I need it. Uh, the title of this series uh, is Given Grace, Therefore Giving Grace. And um, as I've been thinking about this, I was reminded of a quote from C.S. Lewis. He said this, to be a Christian means you forgive the inexcusable in others, because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Or to put it another way, 
how could I hold something against you that God himself has forgiven? And this is, I think, going to be important in the season ahead of us. We had to be patient with one another and exercise grace as we slid into a different season. And now we're coming out of it. And we're going to have to call upon these spiritual muscles again. And so in Ephesians 2, I think we find this really beautiful picture of just what I'm describing here. Uh, It could be characterized as a snapshot of sort of the before and after a person has been rescued and renovated by Christ. Um, Do you guys like makeover shows? Uh, Maybe not makeup makeover. Let me rephrase. Uh, Home improvement shows, a before and after house, a restoration show on an old car. I'm a sucker for those. This old rusty hunk of metal, and then they restore it back to the way it ought to be. I love those. This passage is a picture of just that. In the first three verses of chapter two, Paul describes for the Ephesian church their spiritual condition before Christ, just where they were. And then in the next seven verses, Paul describes for us our spiritual condition after having trusted in Christ and been redeemed. And so altogether, these verses really describe for us the transformation that has taken place for those of us who've entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And sometimes it's just good to be reminded about these things in explicit terms so that we don't take them for granted or just become overly comfortable with them. I think it's profound, in fact, that communion is prescribed as a lasting ordinance that we're to participate in because we need to be regularly punched in the mouth with the grace of God. And that's what it is, and we'll do it again this morning. But this morning, my sermon is uh, really outlined for you around four logical questions about this salvation that Jesus offers to us. The first is this, why did we need saving? The second, why did God choose to save us? And third, how did God save us? And fourth, what has God saved us for? So these are the four questions that I think this passage answers. The first is this, why do we need saving? Ephesians 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Just let that sink in for a moment. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Why did we need saving? Because we were spiritually dead. I'll give you a picture of it. Yesterday I went out or asked Gus to get me a bucket from the shed. He came back in a little grossed out. And I said, why? What did you find? And inside the bucket, he found a dead vole. I want you to think about what happened there. A live vole climbed inside this bucket and spent the remaining time he had trying to get out, and he's dead. 
Uh, my friends, we were spiritually dead and we are not climbing out of that bucket. We're there, we're gonna stay there and we're gonna die there except that God intervenes and that's what he has done. One of the great misunderstandings I think of skeptics and even some Christians uh, around the world is sort of the understanding of the human condition. I think oftentimes you will hear a professor or a colleague or a politician say something like, well, I believe people are fundamentally good. You heard this? They go on to say something like, we're all born innocent. We just need to protect the innocence and the rights of all, live in a respectful and responsible way. We just need to coexist. And it sounds so pleasant, except that it isn't. Because it's wrong. And it's dead wrong. It denies the reality of the spiritual condition of mankind as God lays it out in the scriptures. That isn't Christian theology. That's humanism. In humanism, we're pretty good. We just need to improve things. In humanism, we don't need to be saved. I just need to get a little better. I just need to do more good than bad, or at least more good than you do. I just need to get along. If you need to worship somebody, that's fine. Just don't declare that they're supreme and sovereign over the universe. It's all just inspiration after all. Practice random acts of kindness. Any faith will do. This is humanism 101. And it sounds positive and it's easy on the ears. It's even somewhat easy to get along with. It's not judgmental. It's not shaming. It's not offensive. But it's absolutely wrong. What Paul teaches in Ephesians 2 and in agreement with the entirety of the scriptures is that we're not inherently good. We're actually fundamentally flawed. The Bible teaches that in Adam's sin, he sinned as our representative and on our behalf. And the guilt and the consequence of his sin falls upon us. We're born with a sinful nature and we go through our lives happily adding to sin. Ask you a question. Anybody in here not sinned? We're sinners through and through. We're natural born sinners. Romans 5.12 says, Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. Our default position in this world is that we're separated from God. Which is what Paul means that we're by dead in your transgressions and sins. Uh, you ever notice you don't have to teach someone how to sin? Like your children, for example... They didn't need any lessons on how to sin. They've got that one hardwired. And the scriptures describe this um, sort of this doctrine is what the scriptures describe is called the depravity of man. And you can, if you want to study up on it a little bit, Genesis 3, Genesis 6, Romans 3, Romans 6. There's four passages to kind of square that with you if you like. But I am convinced that one of the reasons that people fail to understand the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ is because of the starting point that they're coming from in their mind. If the starting point that they're coming from is we're pretty good people, then the gospel really is just, eh, take it or leave it. On the other hand, if what the scriptures teaches is true, that we are dead in our trespasses and sin, absolutely separated from God, deserving any punishment that comes our way, if that's the starting point, then the gospel is really good news. Amen? Amen. 
Why do we need to be saved? Because we were spiritually dead. And not only that, we were following a rebel. That's what we were doing. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The ruler of the kingdom of this air is none other than Satan himself. A created angel who rebelled in heaven and took a third of the angels with him. And this rebellion is not a past thing. It's an active and ongoing thing. He is continuing to rebel against God. And the principal way he does it is going after you. Scriptures describe his active ferocity. 1 Peter 5.8. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Yesterday, I was dropping off Ellie at West Valley for a track meet. Gus was in the car with me, and we were driving out. And uh, he said, oh, look, a cat. And I know what you're thinking. He's trying to get me to speed up and, you know, see if I could make contact. <laughs> no, that's not what was happening. He says, look, a cat. And then he realized, oh, wait a minute. That's not a cat. It was a fox. I love seeing fox around Fairbanks. I wish we had more. Um, I just think they're the coolest things. But uh, we saw him, and he was just kind of moving around the parking lot, going from tree to tree and little shrub to shrub, and he was hunting. And it's just fun to see this little creature go around and find its next meal, hunting constantly, actively, all over the parking lot, to and fro. Now, that's cute to look at in a fox and in Fairbanks, but the picture that is given here is of a lion, a roaring lion looking to devour. In Job, we find a similar picture. Job 1, 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? As though he didn't know. Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Satan is not a has-been, a once upon a time. He is actively looking to destroy you. He is your enemy, an active enemy. And the thing about him is he rarely, rarely does he come as a full frontal assault. You know, he doesn't come into your life and introduce himself. Hello, I'm the prince of darkness. Allow me to wreck you. He's tactical and he comes in from the side. And he comes in ways like this, like opportunities, like affluence, like success, like security. In fact, to destroy one who is not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, he doesn't have to smash their life. He just needs to make them feel safe and distracted. If they have no sense of their need for Christ, then they can stay over here in their spiritually dead condition. I think that is one of the principal ways that he is assaulting our nation is creating an ongoing sense of self-reliance so that people never understand their need to come to Christ. 2 Corinthians 11 says this, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. I, I firmly believe this. If Satan were to appear in our fellowship this morning, we would not go, whoa, get out. But what we might see, we would say, nice to have you we would be drawn to him because he disguises himself. 
He doesn't show us fangs. He shows his tactically gentle and yet killer side. He is called the grandfather of lies, the great deceiver and the accuser of the brethren. So he doesn't present as the roaring lion. He presents much softer. The result of this fall was spiritual death. And in that we became unwitting followers of the ruler of this age, Satan himself. And the implication of that is that we were left under God's wrath. That was the result. Why do we need saving? We were spiritually dead, following a rebel, and therefore under God's wrath. Wrath is not an easy teaching. It's not a nice word. Uh, We don't like it. Some of you might think, I really wish that weren't a part of God in his nature. And I'll just say this. um, The only thing worse than wrath and judgment in God is if he weren't those things. If sin went left unpunished, undealt with, it would be awful. The reality is we absolutely want things judged and we want the wrath of God for sin. We want it destroyed. We just don't want our sin to be destroyed. We don't want God's anger towards us. The reality of all of this is we were dead, following a rebel, and therefore under God's wrath. And that could be the end of the story right there. God maintaining his holiness, his justice, and his righteousness. The end. We rebelled, you're out. That could have been the end of the story. Or the way Jerry Bridges has said it, everything this side of hell is grace. But God intervened, and he made a way by which we could be rescued, which takes us to the next question. Why did God save us? Why? Verse 4. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And I would tell you, church, if you would hear nothing else this morning, and if you were to take nothing else away, I pray that this passage would burn its way through your familiarity or your defenses, that you would know it in your heart of hearts and believe it. It is by grace that you have been saved. It is by grace that you have been saved. This passage unpacks some of the attributes of God. We see his great love for us. But I want you to notice how Paul gives all credit to God for this. All credit to God for this salvation. It's because of his great love. And this love of his is not coerced or constrained from outside of him. It's what he is by nature and what he chooses to do. Not because we're lovely or lovable, but because it is who God is. God is love, as we've seen in 1 John. Or let me explain it to you this way. Uh, some friends stopped by church here uh, earlier this, or this past week, and they had with them a new puppy, a little chocolate lab, and I think there was some shepherd in there too, a little puppy, maybe eight weeks old, beautiful eyes, soft and fluffy, and I am a sucker. I am a sucker for a new puppy. And they came by to just kind of socialize the dog and let us meet, and I sat down on the ground, and we just played, and it was great. It was the best part of my day. Um, I don't feel that way about cats, but you knew that. (laughs) But when we hear this verse, 
because of his great love for us, I think the temptation is to think that we're like this little puppy. Soft and beautiful and really quite lovely. Warm and a bit goofy at times. We're like puppies. God loves us. No, we're not. We're rebels. We might say, I can see some of you already thinking it. We're cats. <laughs> I'll just say what you're thinking. We're cats. We're not lovely. We're not lovable. God's love is not constrained from us. It's sourced in himself and given because it's who he is as his own sovereign choice. Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Our second phrase because he is rich in mercy. And I think what comes out so strongly here is that God was not obligated in any way to act to save us or even to act kindly towards us. He just didn't have to. He didn't have to. He didn't owe it to you or to me. The word mercy is defined as uh, when we don't get what we deserve when we don't get what we rightfully deserve. Grace is when we get what we didn't deserve, but mercy is when we deserve something, but we didn't get it. It was withheld. And I think this passage is so wonderful because it helps us to know God better as we learn a full array of his attributes. He is holy, he is righteous, he is just, he does have wrath for sin, but he is also loving and merciful and gracious and self-giving. I love what A.W. Tozer says about this in God. He says, between his attributes, no contradiction can exist. He need not suspend one to exercise another. For in him, all his attributes are one. All of God does all that God does. All of God does all that God does. He does not divide himself to perform a work, but works in the total unity of his being. So why did he save us? Because while being holy and righteous and just, he also has great love and is rich in mercy. Or in other words, he is his own reason for all he is and does. This brings us to our next question then. How did God save us? How? Verse six. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, it's interesting to me here, Paul doesn't really go into a lot of the mechanics of salvation and how the cross was instrumental and all these things. And I think it's simply because he's, you know, he's speaking to a, a church here. And so he's reminding them really of this before and after picture, showing them the significance of the salvation they have and the grace that was at work in it. But I am going to go into some of the mechanics here just because I don't presume that each person sitting here is a believer in Jesus Christ. Some of you are glad to be here and worship with us this morning, but you're also sitting there and you don't know that you are in right standing with God. And so I am going to go into some of the mechanics of salvation here. When we think about, our, about the possibility of salvation through Christ, we have to understand that God cannot just look at sin and look the other way and be dismissive of it, excuse it, downplay it, 
or just sweep it under the carpet. For God to maintain his holiness and his justice and his righteousness, sin has to be punished. And the scandal of the gospel is that he punished our sin in Jesus as a substitute. He gave his son as a sacrifice for our sin. Um, about six weeks ago, I was parked downtown and I got a parking ticket. I seem to get a few parking tickets downtown. It's a particular point of irritation for me. There's been a few, let's just say. And I come out and I look at it and I'm like, I don't understand. I have not been here more than two hours. I'm parked legally. You know, I'm in the zone. There's no signs not to be here. I'm not against a fire hydrant. I don't understand. So I go and I pull the ticket from my windshield and I read it. And why do you think I'm getting a ticket here? You got any guesses? Registration. There it is. What? I'm out of, I go back and look at my license plate and look at the tags. They expired yesterday. (sighs) Okay. Yeah. Give me a ticket. All right. I go into the office and say, hey, these just expired yesterday. What am I to do? They say, if you go take care of it right away, we'll suspend the, whatever it is, the violation fee and just give you an administrative fee. Massive eye roll. Okay. So I go down to the office and I take care of my business and I come back and put the thing on and they suspend part of my fee. Now I'm going to suggest to you for a moment that if that is your picture of salvation, it's wrong. But I think it's the picture of salvation that many have, that God simply suspended something that we owed. Here's the better picture. Two weeks later, I got another parking ticket. (laughs) And this time I was really irritated. And I came out and I was like, what? I don't understand. I haven't been here more than two hours. I'm parked legally. I know my registration is good. I go to the back of my truck, which I freshly washed, and I look at the plate, and guess what? My tags are gone. The car wash took them off. <laughs> I thought, oh, this is ridiculous. I go back down into the office. Hi, remember me? <laughs> I got another ticket because my tags uh, came off in the car wash. And I showed them the documentation. They say, go get your new tags and come back. I did, came back, here you go. And they said, because you had this uh, actually registered and there's documentation of you know, this, this status of your vehicle, then there is no violation here. That is a picture of our salvation in Christ. It's that we, that our violation was taken care of in him. My standing is secure in him because my sins have been paid for. He has secured my standing. It's not something that's just excused and dismissed and punished uh, and, and dealt away with. My sins were paid for at the cross. I love what J.I. Packer says about this. The cross reveals God's hatred for sin because no appeasement would do for his wrath except the death of his son. God did not excuse your sin. He punished it in Christ. Such is his mercy and his grace. And he did more than just, Christ did more than just die for us. He raised for us. And we are raised with him. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Uh, I think we often look at resurrection and we tend to just think, well, that means I have a hope of being raised someday. And that's true. 
but we tend to think about it only in the future tense. If Jesus died for us and raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, then I have a precedent. I have a forerunner. I have hope that I too will be raised and spend eternity with him someday. But Paul <coughs> would have us understand that we have been raised with Christ now, presently, given life now. We're not just circling the drain for someday when things are better and we get to be with him. We've been raised to life now, having spiritual life now and spiritual power now that we did not have before. In the, in the chapter prior to this one, we're told that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive within us. We have an ability to follow God now in obedience that we did not have prior to our regeneration. In Romans 6, Paul says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We might live it, not just hope for a future eternity. We have a resurrection life to live now. What did God save us for? This is our final question. Verse seven. In order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In other words, one of the reasons that we are saved is to show the fullness of his glory in Christ. I often, um, I mean, in other words, there's, there is this sense in which God didn't just save us for our own sake, but he saved us for the sake of revealing himself. Uh, I get asked this question a lot as a pastor. Someone will come up to me and say, you know, if God is omniscient, he knows all things, and he knew that making this creation, they would rebel, they would sin, and they would you know, run their wicked ways. Why does he bother? Why make a creation that's going to do that? And I think the answer to that is this. There are aspects of God's nature and his attributes and his glory that we would not know that could not be revealed unless we needed to be redeemed. In other words, the grace of God the mercy of God, the vast love of God, the forgiveness of God, we would not know if we had not needed it. Like it or not, all these things require sin in order for God's glory to be fully expressed. The fallenness of this world and of mankind gives God the opportunity to put on display the full range of his glory that we would not otherwise know. So why did God save us? Well, we like to think it was just for us. And there's some truth to that. We, after all, needed to be rescued, but he also did it for his own sake, that he might showcase his glory and his goodness, that he might be known. And that is, and that is shown to us in the ministry of Christ. But he also does so to show the fullness of his glory in us. Verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 
I, I don't know if Paul could have been any clearer about this. Our salvation is his doing from first to last. It was his initiative, the result of his love and his mercy, his grace. It is God's doing. Um, if you think about an artist, an artist is only an artist as they are sort of expressing what they wish to, to capture or to sculpt or to paint. That is their artistry. But God shows his nature by rendering something in us as his work of art. We are a masterpiece. We are his workmanship. That's what this passage says here. The word, the Greek word for workmanship is poema, and it is masterpiece. God is as like an artist rendering something in us in the here and now that is a beautiful masterpiece for his own glory. I've never been a piece of art in my life. I'm a pretty rough creature. But God is rendering something in me. In fact, what he's doing is he's making me human again, restoring in me the image of God that was once marred at the fall. Verse 10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so I want to close with this particular picture here. And I hope that what you have heard this morning from beginning to end, I hope you just feel saturated and overwhelmed by the grace and the mercy of God. Something none of us deserved, but were given freely. But I want to put this picture in your head in closing here. Um, I think about the relationship between our sun and our moon, and, and it's fascinating to me. Um, you remember that moment as a kid when you realized the sun isn't glowing, it's reflecting light. You remember that? Or maybe some of you just learned, yeah. <laughs> um, the sun, the source of all light and life and energy and warmth in our universe, right, radiates this. Our moon, which has no self-illuminating properties of its own, just this dusty ball hanging out to our right. <laughs> and yet when it comes into correct alignment with the sun, the glory and the radiance of the sun hits it and it reflects it back. And my friends, that is what we are to be. We don't have this source of light and life within us. God does. And he has given it to us and radiated it to us and we as his masterpiece sort of get to catch it and reflect it to a lost and dying world. Great grace has been given to us by the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Therefore, we ought to be those who give great grace to one another and to the lost world. Let's pray. Father, we are reminded again of our starting point in this world. not as delightful little creatures, but as rebels who were dead in our trespasses and sins, following the spirit of the air and of this world, the evil one. And that made us objects of wrath. That's what we deserved. End of story. Except our God who is rich in mercy who loves us because it was his choice 
made us alive in Jesus Christ. What tremendous grace we have received. May we be good reflections of that grace in our daily lives as we live with one another and try to love this world. We pray in Christ's name, amen.